As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Welcome back to this week's edition of the show. Always a pleasure to sit down with Tom, uh, even if we are divided by a computer screen at the moment in these episodes, but uh, still lots of good knowledge and wisdom and insight uh, that we're able to bring your way across all sorts of different questions that come in. Um, Remember, all of the questions that get asked of Tom are because people have subscribed to our newsletter and are then able to send their questions in. Um, Now, uh, Children and young people, obviously many of the listeners to this podcast are parents or grandparents, Tom, as are you. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, your family on, in that respect. How, how many children do you have? How many grandchildren? And, and what's the difference between being a, a, a parent and a grandparent? <laughs> the usual line, um, which is a bumper sticker, is if I'd known grandkids were this much fun, I'd have had them first. <laughs> and, uh, there is a bit of that. Um, great thing about grandkids of course is you get to give them back um they're they're, they're wonderful but then when it gets difficult it's somebody else's job in theory at least no my four children are two sons two daughters ranging from um mid 40s i guess julian my oldest son is 46 now down to um about to turn 40 and uh, so we had uh, our four children within seven years which was quite something wow Mm. my wife is a saint and each one of my four has one, except the last one who has two with another one on the way. So we have four grandchildren and, uh, 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 sorry, five grandchildren and soon to be six. Um, and uh, there was some debate among the grandchildren as to what sex they wanted the, the new one to be, because we had two grandsons and two granddaughters and then one other grandson and so was this going to tilt the balance uh, dramatically or was it going to be um and and it turns out it's going to be another boy and i've actually got a, an in vitro photograph of him sitting just beside the camera here oh, lovely. which helps me as i pray for this little as yet unborn child um morning by morning um so uh, yeah we've we've had an interesting time family wise mm. it's not mm. been entirely easy we've moved house a lot they've moved schools they've done this they've done that we've had illness we've had different challenges but here we still are absolutely well um we're not claiming again with this caveat to be specialists in child psychology or uh, youth work um but we're 
going to simply be drawing on, on your own common sense and uh, experience, Tom, of, of as we look at some of these questions, both from parents with tricky questions that their young children have been asking them and, and generally on the principles of parenting as well and how that relates to scripture. Um, so why don't we start with some, some tricky theological questions? And I often find the hardest questions come from children um, because you sort of, you can't get away with the theological fudging you sometimes get away with with an adult, don't you? Um, but look, here, here's a great question from Will in Virginia. It says, I have a three-year-old son who's been asking difficult questions lately. Why did God make mosquitoes? Why did God make ouches? First, do you think it's responsible to say that all pain is a result of the fall? I used to think so, but now I'm not so sure. Could Adam have stubbed his finger in the Garden of Eden? Did Eve get bitten by mosquitoes? If Adam went swimming, was he in danger of getting bitten by a shark? I'd like to have a well thought through answer to his questions. Any resources would be helpful as well. And he's also been asking questions like, why did God make the virus? Why did God make some people with no homes? He's basically asking, why is there suffering in the world? How do you talk to a toddler, though? about these issues, asks Will. It's very interesting uh, where these questions come from, and they're they're great questions, of course they are. Um, But I think with these and with a lot of other questions that adults ask as well, there is a sense in the modern Western world that we have got used to such a comfortable lifestyle where basically things work. You can drive a car down the street, you can go shopping, you can do this, you can do that. You can have a, a quote, normal life in a way that would have been absolutely unthinkable 200 years ago in the Western world and is still unthinkable to the majority of the population of the world right now today, where things are tough and bad things do happen all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we have got used to this idea of the world being basically a comfortable place. And then if, oh dear, if Aunt Jane gets cancer when she's only 50, then how terrible and how shocking and how could God allow that? If you go back in history, um, the early church fathers knew perfectly well that most people died between the ages of, I don't know, 20 and 40, um, and that there were horrible sufferings and earthquakes and so on. And I think we have to distance ourselves from this bubble that we've lived in the last 200 years in the Western world, which is basically the world is a nice place, and oh dear, there's one or two nasty things about it, and get back to the idea, which is a much more robustly realistic idea. That, that when we're talking about God making a good world, this doesn't mean it was totally perfect in all respects and then went horribly wrong, though there is a sense in which that's, that, there is some truth in that, but that God's plan was for a project, that this was the start, and God commissions human beings to take his project forwards and to make his world the place he wants it to be, which it wasn't yet. That plan gets aborted because of human sin, so that instead of the world going in the direction that God wants and moving towards the completion of his purpose, a world in which the glory of God will fill heaven and earth together as the waters cover the sea, as the prophets and the Psalms say, Um, instead of that, the things that needed sorting out in the world Many of them have not been sorted out and have got worse. So somehow to talk about God's original creation as the beginning of a good project with humans as the people who are supposed to be helping bring it to where God wanted it to be 
and that that going wrong means that there's all sorts of stuff which needs to be sorted out. This raises big questions about God, fine. Let's have those big questions because the older I get and the more I study theology and the Bible and so on, the more I'm convinced that we learn about who God is by looking at Jesus. And Jesus is not somebody who simply walks through creating a perfect world in all directions, but one who comes and shares the pain and sorrow of the world in order thereby to bring about God's eventual purpose of new creation. So mm-hmm. even questions about Genesis, I want to say sooner or later, we've got to bring them back to the Jesus question. What we learn about God by looking at Jesus and thinking, if this is what God incarnate looks like, what does that tell us about God's original purpose. That's tough, but I think actually yes. children might be more up for that than some well, adults. Well, perhaps. But I still feel like that answer is is the answer you would potentially give an adult Christian. Um, now, now, if it is your six-year-old grandchild asking yeah. you just one of these questions, why yeah. did God make mosquitoes? What would you say, Tom, to your six-year-old I, I, grandchild? I would say God made an extraordinary world in which there is... Um, uh, an amazing food chain where different animals eat other animals and where um, big fish eat little fish and whatever it is. Um, But that God seems from the glimpses we have to have wanted this world to be changed and transformed into the perfect world that he had in mind. This is the the, the language of project. I think even small Mm. children can get hold of that that this was the beginning of something with humans having being told, please, will you help me do this? That's a very profound thing. But I think a child can get hold of the idea of adults wanting to do something and saying to the child, I need your help to do this. We, we, we can get on with that. And if the child says, no, I can't do that, then things that ought to happen don't happen. Um, whether that solves mosquitoes or even wasps or, or whatever, um, that, that's, that's a very different story. And I know that gets worse. Those questions get worse when there are some creatures whose whole existence seems to be uh, all about getting inside other creatures and eating them from the inside and horrible stuff like that. Um, I, I don't know that we can get too far with that. Sooner or later, we have to say, and we have to admit it to the children, these are huge and difficult questions, but the way we address those questions is by looking carefully at Jesus and at his compassion and at the way he took the worst that the world could do and took it on himself. And so, in a sense, you need the whole story in order to be able to answer the good but difficult questions. Mm. Josh in Idaho, USA. Um, says, I have a very curious and inquisitive seven-year-old son. He recently became a Christian and was baptized. Um, He's got many very good questions on heaven and hell that I've been having a difficult time answering. How would you suggest explaining the difficult questions of the afterlife to a seven-year-old, such as, did God create hell? Where exactly is heaven? Did so-and-so go to heaven when they died? Do you have any recommended resources again on that? Um, now we've, we've we've covered these issues obviously in, in previous podcasts, Tom, heaven and hell, and and you know we've gone some nuance and detail on that. But again, it's it's about what do we say to the the seven year old? And I'm right. I'm a father of four, and my youngest, my five year old, he's full of questions at the moment. Whenever we have a bedtime prayer, 
Uh, he wants to know where, where is Jesus right now? Um, <laughs> he's fascinated by this. I've tried to get across the idea that Jesus was both born as a child, but Jesus also pre-existed being born as a child. And, and he's got all these, he, his other question the other night was, was Jesus lonely before he got born? And I, I then tried to explain the concept of the Trinity, uh, which was, I'm not sure how well I did, but, but these are the things it's, it's, it's kids have the natural questions that come uh and and uh, well let's answer josh's question rather than my ones but but what do you say in this instance to a child asking very obvious very you know questions that need to be answered about uh heaven and hell very literal in a sense well where's heaven yeah uh this is to the friend in idaho who's asking these i i'm not sure if was it he or she Josh, has read yes, has read my book surprised by hope but but that is where i've set out what the bible actually teaches in relation to these issues and i know that in many parts of america and perhaps this is true in idaho heaven and hell are absolutely the fixed things that christians talk about and the only really reason only reason for for existing and for being a christian is to go to heaven rather than to go to hell and when we point out that in the bible god promises a new creation in which heaven and earth will come together look at ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 look at revelation 21 look at so many passages which deal with this then everything looks different and hell and heaven are not equal and opposite we need to shake up our categories and this demands a major rethink and it is difficult when talking to children but actually i think the heaven and hell thing became popular particularly in the west through the insidious influence of platonism in our culture where we all were taught that we had a soul this was the secret bit of ourselves inside and that the question was would the soul go this way or that and this has had all sorts of knock-on effects about bodily behavior because well it's only the body so that doesn't matter because what matters is the soul etc etc and and we need to teach our children that we are human beings made to live at the intersection of heaven and earth where our god dimension our awareness of god and our awareness of the world and what we do and are in the world are supposed to be working together all the time so that when we have lived our lives in in the present mode then god will look after us after our death until the time when he renews heaven and earth together we need to read romans 8 we need to read first corinthians 15 we need to read revelation 21 and 22 and and by not concentrating on those passages um, the church has sold itself short and made its life more difficult i have a friend who when his children were young and he was trying to explain these things to them uh, fastened on to the bit in revelation 21 when it says that God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And he would say to, I remember to his daughter when she was four or five, that one day God will remake the world so that there will be no tears. And every four or five-year-old knows about tears. And this little girl, bless her, would then ask her questions in terms of, Daddy, when we get to the no tears place, I really like that. Mm. A, a, a way of, A way for a child to say, this will be a place when nobody weeps because everything is okay. Everything's happy. There's no more pain or sorrow anymore. Um, 
And so that's very like an existential way of, of, of saying God will make a new world and it will be wonderful and it will be like this world only more so. Mm. It will be that is physical and solid and exciting and dramatic and musical and, and, and beautiful um, only in ways that at the moment we can only just yes. begin to imagine. And, and I've, heard, I've heard you say this before, actually, and, and I think it's really helpful. And, and funnily enough, you know, we've had very similar questions to these from, mm-hmm. from our youngest. Again, and again, it's our youngest who seems to have the most questions at the moment. And and we've I'll admit this, you know, we, we haven't really talked about hell at this point. We haven't. It hasn't come up. It's not a sort of something that's in their consciousness at this point. But there's certainly the idea of what happens to people when they die um, is, is a frequent question. And um, I've said, well, um, we believe that if someone trusts in Jesus, they're with Jesus. And um, and then and then so, so where are they now? Well, and then I've moved on to talking about, well, we believe actually there'll be a day when we're, we're we are, this whole world is made new. And now our, our five year old piped up the other day with saying, oh, I'm really looking forward to the day when Jesus makes everything new again. And I thought, OK, well, great. Now. I don't know if that means they're thinking I can't wait till my toys are made new again or something like that. Who knows how that's being interpreted for, in a five-year-old sort of mind. Yeah. But, but we've, I suppose we've consciously tried as parents to not tr- steer, steer the children away from a sort of very traditional, let's say, view of heaven is up there, we're down here, and Auntie Maud's looking down on us right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And try and give them a, a vision of, of, of this idea of a, of a world to come where as you said there will be no more tears and so on and it seems to be going in at some level but very often I think if the adults don't really have a good idea of what that might be it's going to be very hard to convey it to to children isn't it absolutely if the adults are still thinking in terms of a platonic vision of souls going to heaven or possibly going to hell which we get from dante we get from michelangelo we get from a thousand sources over the last 500 years particularly in western church history then it's if if the adults don't get it the biblical vision then it's going to be very hard for the children to get it i think the important thing is that In the New Testament, we are promised, Jesus himself promises and Paul promises um, that those who die in the Lord will be with him. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with the Messiah, which is far better. He doesn't say it'll be in heaven. He doesn't say it'll be my soul. They're very reticent about what language they use, which is interesting because other people writing at the time were not so reticent. I think reticence is appropriate. And then the with Jesus thing is the thing to cling on to. But then, Colossians 3, Paul says um, that God will bring them with him, that we, um, our life is hid with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. In other words, when the final end comes, then we will be raised to new life. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, um, which is important, actually, because Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and people often say, oh, that's so that, that's where we're going back to. I heard a very distinguished theologian saying that not long ago. I said, no, please get the exegesis right. Yeah. Mm. The point is we are citizens of heaven currently on earth with a commission and God and Jesus will come from heaven to earth to establish his rule and reign here to bring heaven and earth together, not to take us away from earth to heaven. Inevitably, though, even in a relatively post-Christian culture, we're we're often fighting against, you know, 
the sorts of images that will be on our kids tv screens um the, the simpsons with you know absolutely reinforcing the sort of the heaven oh, really? and hell yes, sort yes. of dynamic and, and as the medieval mystery plays indeed yeah. which i think is where we need to engage our children's imagination almost against that you know we are both yeah. fans of c.s lewis but i read my children the narnia stories because yeah. Yeah. one of the best descriptions of heaven i find is in the last battle and uh, and and that's a sort of a way of helping i think to engage yes. but we, further, we up and, further up and farther in yes. exactly yeah Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. Thank you. Let's turn, turn to some other questions around this, uh, rather than specific questions that children have. Um, these are adults asking about how we how we best parent children. And let, let's go to this one about church, though, specifically. Erin uh, in Ohio says, um, how do you think churches should integrate children into the body and include them in worship with adults? I'm part of a church that has one service for adults, another for college students, another for high school kids, etc. And these services are on different days in different buildings. As a mum of three young children, aged six and younger, it seems wrong, even unbiblical, that in this church, my children and I will never worship together. Do you see a place for children during church services? Should young children attend a Sunday school type class while the pastor preaches, etc.? And finishes by saying, I desire to worship and serve alongside my children and for me and my husband to be their primary disciples. But it seems that the church wants to delegate that responsibility to trained professionals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I resonate with this very strongly. When our first child was born, um, I reacted very badly to the idea that when we, got, when we came to church, he would be off in a different space and we would be in, in church. I, I, I wanted him there for us to be together precisely as a family. Now, of course, with a small child, they cry, they disturb people. Some churches are very happy that that should be the case. Others find it very intrusive and it depends on the acoustics of the church and so on. And certainly if you've got crying babies around when somebody's trying to preach a sermon, that is very, very difficult. I still recall one or two services from the days of my youth when I badly wanted to listen to a very important sermon and somebody just wasn't controlling their child sufficiently. And I would always now take a child out if it's crying for perfectly good reasons. If it's just being naughty, then maybe it needs to learn and come back in, whatever. Once we had got to the point of having four children, (laughs) I was very happy that somebody else would look after them for part, at least of the service, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that we could actually listen to the sermon, etc. And so I think... 
however much one wants to be together, and ideally in a healthy church community, there ought to be a time of all worshipping together, not just two minutes at the beginning and two minutes at the end, but a good solid block of time, which then can be differentiated. And different churches will have different ways of doing that. I remember Sam Wells, who's now vicar of um, St. Martin in the Fields in London, saying that when he was in a parish in, I think, Norfolk, um, at one point it got to the stage where, for various reasons, they had significantly more children in church than older people. And so they reversed the normal pattern. And at a certain point in the worship, the older people would go out to their class and the children would remain and the service was, uh, was run as a children's service. And then at a certain point, the adults would come back in and tell the children what they'd been doing. And all the children would say, ah. Oh, and you know, just completely reversing the normal thing. And that has a very powerful appeal to me too. Yes. Um, but I think one has to be creative. Um, but, and, and the idea of different days and different buildings for different groups, that really worries me because it goes with, it goes with the over-specialization. Back, back to a, a previous podcast that we did, um, you know, that th there are many churches today which, in order to be an effective church plant, have started off with people inviting people who are very similar to them socioculturally and ethnically and so on. And then you get churches of the like-minded who are all doing the same thing at the same time. And the whole point of the church is that this should be a richly mixed human community. And one of the great delights of my time as Bishop of Durham was when we let, we had a pilgrimage to Holy Island. We went on buses, and, and the, but then we, we got out and we walked across the sands and we had the local television cameras there. And as one of my colleagues said, where else would you find a community with old ladies in their Wellington boots and um, mothers and toddlers and people of all ages all doing something together and then all ending up in church together for a little mm -hmm. service on Holy Island. And it makes you realize there are very few places in our world where that happens, where yes. an all-age community is there. And the church has something to model there which the world needs to see. So yes, we need to teach children. Yes, we need to find wise ways of doing it. Otherwise, everyone just gets frustrated. But let's not lose that vision for that whole all-age community, which from time to time needs to be seen to be precisely that. Mm, yes, thank you. Um, uh, we, we, we've always felt that as well. I mean, honestly, in, in our church community, one, one of the wonderful things is to see a 90-year-old next to a six-year-old and, and, and them talking, you know, and, and it's, it's just so refreshing to see that. And as you say, very few places you actually see that happening. Exactly. Where else in the world? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, let's, uh, let, let's go to another question. Um, this, is, this is one from Will in Australia. And it's a sort of how much do you censor the Bible for young children? Um, so Will wants to say, what are some strategies for teaching kids about the Bible? I find it difficult to read most, many passages in the Bible to my preschoolers because they involve violence, sometimes even commanded by God. Child sacrifice, destruction of Israel, hell, Roman torture, the wrath of the Lamb. Typically, I'd wait until they're much older to expose them to movies with this kind of content. But I'd like to be able to share with them the gospel message earlier in their life. I know, Tom, you were reading the Bible at four years old. So, I mean, how much did you take in when you were a child, Tom, of that, that sort of part of the Bible? In that I, I, yeah, I grew up in a church going family. And yeah, I was given my first Bible when I was four and a half. Um, and uh, uh, I just 
vaguely started to read it, but going to church, you, you hear bits of Bible and so on. And I started reading it seriously on a sort of properly organized basis when I was, I think, 12. It was not a bad time to start. I wish it had been a little earlier, but still. Um, and I, I, I was never bothered by all that. And I, I think sometimes we over or underestimate um, what children are aware of and can take on board. I mean, an awful lot of um, traditional children's fairy stories or, or um, uh, like, like Grimm's fairy stories and so on, um, th th they have pretty horrendous things going on. Um, and uh, these correspond to sort of children's nightmares very often. And if the story resolves, then it actually helps the children, supposedly, I'm not a child psycho psychologist at all, but helps the children to face the fact that, yes, there are fearful things, there are things that would really scare you, but this this can be worked through and we come through the it's, other side. It's a really interesting point that you, if you simply look back at some of that more traditional children's fairy tale stuff, you're, you're quite taken aback at uh, oh, yeah. um, it's, it, modern children's, you know, preschool stuff is, is far more sanitized these days, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, I mean, little, little Red Riding Hood and all that sort of thing. These are pretty horrendous. The, yes. the grandmother who turns into the wicked wolf and, and, and so on. Um, and and uh, I think children kind of have ways of coping with that. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are PhDs been written about that and I haven't read them, but that doesn't worry me so much. <clears throat> when my children were younger, we had a particular children's Bible and we used to read it, you know, a, a double page spread every night with them and say prayers. And for whatever reason, this particular children's Bible included a double page spread of the story of Jephthah and Jephthah's daughter. Oh, right. Gosh, oh, <laughs> interesting choice. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I am working on a children's Bible at the moment, and I'm afraid Jephthah's daughter is not going to feature. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of other things that feature, and I've tried to work around that. But I used to turn over two pages at once when we got to that. I remember Rosamond, age, I don't know, three. Daddy, why did you turn over two pages? <laughs> <laughs> quickly trying to change the subject because no that 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 is um because i think the only way i can hold on to those myself as part of the holy scripture is by seeing the larger story and of course the book of judges ends with the emphasis that in those days there was no king in israel and everyone just did what was right in their own eyes which is a way of saying wasn't it a good thing that eventually we got a king because this was a real mess but of course, the stories of David and Solomon are not exactly clean and straightforward, mm -hmm. um, and so on and so on. And I think part of the point of all that, over against, again, a lot of sanitized Western theology, part of the point is to say that life is messy. It has mosquitoes, it has violence, it has bullies, it has bad people rampaging. And good people often do get hurt in the middle of that. But the Bible story isn't about God who's made a wonderful world and we can sort of pretend that we're living in it. It's about God himself coming and living in the middle of that messy world and taking its full pain on himself. And the crucifixion story needs to be presented in terms of, strangely, the God who made the world came to take the worst that the world would do on himself. 
in order to forge a way through and out the other side into new creation, which is what the resurrection is all about. And, and that's, that's got to be at the heart of it. There's that strange little verse in Hebrews 2, which says that through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And we shouldn't be afraid of saying that, that when all the death and destruction and horror is going on, not only in the Old Testament, but obviously also in the New, um, then we believe that the whole story is about God coming and taking that death into himself in order to defeat it once and for all. And that's the center of the whole biblical message. Basically, everything else flows out from that. Mm. Well, um, uh, we, we're probably not in a position um, to, to give you many resources on these, but there are, we know that there are many great resources published sure. by the same publishers that publish your books, of course, Tom. Um, so, so um, yes, uh, perhaps perhaps in the, the – what I'll do is I'll make sure to include some resources that uh, we think are good uh, with the, the, the show notes from today's because a few people right. have asked for, for resources for children here. Tom, but um, we'll we'll include those in. Yes, the, that's in not the my notes. not my specialism, and, no. and I'm sure there are people who know about that, and I'm not one of them. Absolutely, um, but um, it's been helpful again uh, to, to to get your thoughts uh, as a as a father, as a grandfather, um, and we hope there've been some help to those who are listening who are who are trying to answer those tricky questions from children and, and raise them. Um, but uh, for now, thank you very much, Tom, for being with me on this episode. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. 